Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I'm your host, Ed Cunningham, and this is another interview episode where I speak to an author about their book. The author this week is Patrick Alley, and his book that he has written is called Very Bad People, which is an expose on corruption in the world. His organisation, Global Witness, that he founded in the early 90s, works to break the links between natural resource exploitation, conflict, poverty, corruption and human rights abuses worldwide. Some of the work they have done you will have definitely heard of. He is an amazing individual and is probably the person I've spoken to who has eradicated the most human suffering in the world. It was an honour to chat to him and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. If you do want to buy the book, of course, you can get that from wherever you fancy. If you'd like to follow Global Witness on Instagram, you can do so. I'll put the information in the description. Also in the description of the show will be information on the sponsors, which are BetterHelp and Athletic Greens. BetterHelp is to get you online therapy. If you're finding your mind is giving you too much to deal with at the moment and you're struggling to manage it, speaking to a professional will be profoundly helpful. I found talking therapies to be amazing for me throughout the time that I've had little blips with my mental health, to say the least, and I can't see why anyone would be any different. If you fancy yourself getting some therapy, just complete a 10-minute questionnaire and get matched with a therapist within 48 hours. You can do that by heading to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, and you'll also get 10% off. Now with Athletic Greens, it's a multivitamin supplement that you take in the morning on an empty stomach, and you drink it, and it's green. And you know what? It doesn't taste terrible. I've been taking it for about two years, and I consider it to be my nutritional insurance. If you don't get enough vegetables, if you've not got a variety in your diet, and you could probably do with 75 vitamins and minerals and adaptogens and prebiotics and probiotics then get yourself some athletic greens you can get access to their offer of five free travel packs and one year's free supply of vitamin d3 by heading to athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read that's athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read all the information for sponsors of the show signing up to the email following on instagram or even sending me an email if you fancy are in the description but without further ado, I'll bring you my conversation with Patrick Alley. Your book, Very Bad People, has opened my eyes up to a lot of what goes on in the world that I was completely unaware of. Um, I was born in 1994, so a lot of the stuff at the start of the book was around when I was two or three. So I think I'll, I'll let myself off for not knowing about that. But my... Uh, my first question is how do a couple of self-professed gobshites from London become one of probably the most feared uh, expose industry? I wouldn't even know what, what you guys call yourself apart from Global Witness um, in the world who leave the oil industry, diamonds, timber, quaking in their boots. Yeah, it was actually three three um, self-confessed gobshites. Um, was myself, my colleague Simon and Shanyan. Um Well, it was all a bit of an accident, really. We we met um, we three working for an environmental organisation um, back in the early nineteen nineties, and that organisation carried out you know investigative work into things like the ivory trade or, or the hunting of whales. Um, and we were, by complete coincidence, interested in what was happening in Cambodia at the time. And, and what was happening then was big news. There had been a civil war going on for decades in various different forms. And by the early 90s, it was between the Khmer Rouge rebel movement, 
who had been responsible for the biggest genocide since World War II, and a newly elected government and in, in Cambodia. And we read news reports that there was timber being smuggled across the Cambodian border into Thailand. And we thought, well, presumably that's to fund the Khmer Rouge. It's coming from Khmer Rouge territory. Um, and this was at the same time as the UN were mounting their biggest peacekeeping operation ever until that time to try and bring an end to that war. So we thought, well, this is undermining that whole effort. Um, if, if, if that's true, if, if, if our theory is right. And then we thought, we asked ourselves three questions. One was, is this an environmental issue or a human rights issue? And it was both, you know, cutting down a rainforest to fund a war is both, but no organization was looking at that nexus at the time. Not many do now. Um, the next question was, well, if you close that border, the Thai-Cambodia border to the trade, presumably you cut the money flow and end the war, don't you? You know, open-ended question. And, and, and the third question was, well, why don't we do it? Um, and it wasn't that we were very obvious people to do it because we had absolutely no experience in doing anything like that. We had never been to the area. We had no money. We had no organization. We worked for, for somebody else. Um, but we thought, hell, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this. Um, this was sort of conversations in various pubs, um, notably the Betsy Trotwood, just off the Farringdon Road in London. Um, and it took us 18 months to, to try and get any money together. We created the organization Global Witness, uh, conscious of the fact that people might confuse us with Jehovah's Witnesses, which they shouldn't confuse us with, um, uh, as all the conversations are in pubs. Um, and we started, you know, shaking, uh, you know, charity collection tins outside tube stations to try and get some money together. But that was sort of netting around, you know, five quid a time because we had no, you know, no one knew who we were. We had no track record. There's no reason anyone should give us anything. Most of them didn't. And, but finally, a bunch of friends clubbed together and gave us a thousand quid. We rented a one room office in Clark and well above a junk shop and thought, okay, um, what do we do? Um, but within a week or so, a, a funding proposal had come together. Um, we had £18,000 then. And myself and my colleague Simon launched ourselves on the Thai-Cambodia border. And what we had to do, we, we, we thought, you know, we need to find the timber companies involved. Where are they? And we need to get them to tell us what's going on. We need to know if this timber trade was real. Did it exist? If it did exist, what scale was it? And so we... We went undercover. We thought no one's going to, if we say we're, you know, want to end the timber trade, they're not going to tell us anything, are they? So we posed as European timber buyers. Um, we created a cover company called Universal Export, which is the same name Ian Fleming used um, to describe MI6 in the James Bond books. Yeah. Um, it was good enough for James Bond, is good enough for us, we thought. Um, and we had false names and we had the secret camera, which in those days was quite a cumbersome piece of kit. And we drove. The border is 700 kilometers long, and we drove actually three and a half thousand kilometers because we probed every border road. And it's kind of dangerous business because on the other side of the border was the Khmer Rouge. They controlled Western and, and Northern Cambodia. Yeah. And if we'd gone across, it would have, you know, they were like the IS of their time, you know, that they, they mm. killed Westerners. They had a reward out for Westerners. Um, so you have to be careful not to go so far. But we found the Thai timber companies, and sure enough, this trade was happening. And, and rather surprisingly, that the, the timber companies uh, told us quite openly, and the, the log truck drivers told us quite openly what was going on. And we captured it on film. We got hold of some documents, and we, we showed that 
the trade was document uh, was bringing in 10 to 20 million dollars every month the Khmer Rouge one of the most well-resourced rebel organizations on the planet at that time yeah. and so we we got the information and we thought okay we've got the information what do we do with it because the only point of having information is if you can use it and our former boss in the, in the organization where we met a guy called Alan Thornton had said to us you know like it or not that the greatest influencing place in the world is Washington, D.C. You need to go there. Um, so we landed, you know, a few months later, after we, our first investigation was in January 95, we landed a couple of months later in Washington and started presenting our information mm. to very skeptical staffers in the State Department, to congressional offices of, you know, of, of Congress people and senators. Mm. Um, and again, you know, we had no track records. A lot of people didn't believe what we were saying, but we, we actually had proof and we pushed and pushed and pushed. And in May, five months after we began, the border was closed, um, which did come as a surprise to us. Um, the US put diplomatic pressure on Thailand, Thailand closed the border. And within 18 months, the, the Khmer Rouge had defected. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of global witness. But, but one of the things um, that I, I think is a really key takeaway of this, because this was unintended. I said everything was a bit of an accident. Yeah, yeah. Was we discovered that the Cambodian government had been collaborating with the Khmer Rouge to export timber from Khmer Rouge territory, and both sides were taking a cut. The Khmer Rouge, on one deal, we exposed as a three hundred million dollars worth of timber, which should have exp- earned the Khmer Rouge $95 million and the Cambodian government $35 million. And it wasn't even the government. It was top leadership. It was yeah. individuals, not the government. And we thought, well, this is it. This is our discovery of corruption. We'd, we hadn't gone into this world thinking about corruption. We didn't really know anything about corruption. But there it was. And that was the beginning of the course of Global Witness, really, that tackling corruption. We were, as others have described us, one of the pioneers of the the global anti-corruption movement. It's good. It's um, it's quite an ambiguous name. So you're lucky you didn't call it the Timber Witness or something to begin with, and then and then have to change it. Um, but just so people understand the the scale of that first accidental victory, that that was the Khmer Rouge were essentially former communist Pol Pot supporters in Cambodia. Pol Pot, the evil tyrant who killed or genocide millions of people, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, the Khmer Rouge had ruled Cambodia between 1974 and 79. Um, and the Vietnamese invaded the country and got rid of them. And they all went into Thailand. Um, and then gradually they were in refugee camps, UN refugee camps, obviously not posing as Khmer Rouge at that time. Oh, wow. And then they gradually infiltrated back into Cambodia boycotted the elections and resumed their war. Uh, and one of the things we discovered, I mean, Pol Pot was still around, you know, Pol Pot was in a town called An Long Veng, which is in Khmer Rouge territory up North Cambodia and Pai Lin, which is on the Western border was, was one of their major strongholds. And so we were kind of probing, you know, on the Thai side, as I say, close to those places, because those were the, the seats of power of, you know, of all the evil leaders of the Khmer Rouge, they were all still there. Um, still alive, still running it. And and what we realized was that that side of the border, and when the Khmer Rouge defected, we actually managed to go into their former territory, which was still kind of changed hands a few times. But And what what we kind of found out on our investigations was proven, was that they had their own road network, they had their own economy, 
this is before the days of the internet, before the days you could easily access satellite imagery or anything. So you know, you'd know any of this stuff. And and yeah, the, the economy ran on the Thai bar, not the Cambodian real. Um, it was just this kind of state within a state. And although they weren't genociding at that in, in that territory, they, they were engaged in a really brutal war. Um, and of course, the average Cambodian person was caught up in the middle of it. Yeah, it, it's, it, there's a quote in your book somewhere about how it's it's never the people who you think are affected are the ones getting getting affected the most. It's the le- the most vulnerable who are just in these towns, who are then displaced by Khmer Rouge, who are just the ones the ones that are suffering and and really suffering. And that's what's so impressive about this like accidental victory is. How many lives have you just changed for the better? Do you, do you ever reflect on that? I, I imagine if you do for too long, it might get to your head. I don't know. <laughs> I guess all we can think of is, is we we contribute something. I, I don't, you know, we don't buy into the thing of you know the kind of the white savior complex. Yeah, you know, we can't sort out all of the problems of the world, but if we can tackle some of the root causes of the problems, then that enables the problems to get sorted out. So whereas, you know, Cambodia sort of morphed from Khmer Rouge rule to democracy to dictatorship within the last um, yeah. you know, 30 years, which is a sad irony. So it's not like we sorted out Cambodia. No. We helped We helped one aspect of it. We, we took the money out of conflict. We helped take the money out of that conflict, um, which laid one of the foundations for, you know, trying to, you know, for people to build a more stable country. And, and, um, and in other work we've done, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the focus on corruption is the key thing. I think that that discovery of the role of corruption in almost every dodgy thing you can think about, mm. including the current war, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, corruption is always at the center of these things. And we thought, well, and, and no one really, apart from Transparency International at that time was working on it. And we thought, if that's the thing we need to tackle to, you know, bring in new laws, to get a few guys in jail, whatever, that's what we need to do. And that's kind of what we focused on ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and your money mostly comes from funding. Is that correct? Like from, from donations? Yeah. I mean, most of our funding comes from trusts and foundations. So, you know, big philanthropic uh, institutions, um, George Soros's Open Society Foundation, uh, didn't fund us at the beginning. They came in a few years later, but they're a really important funder. But yeah, outfits like the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, um, uh, and, and and many others. Um, we get we don't get we wouldn't, wouldn't mind having it, but we don't get a lot of money from individuals. We don't have vast membership like say Greenpeace or Amnesty. Yeah, well, you can always go corrupt. You know, I've heard it's a pretty good way to get get money. Well, I try. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's it's funny because George, George Soros is like a scapegoat for QAnon and the, and the far right. It's like this one of their least favorite billionaires. But from reading reading your book, seems like a, a stand up guy. Really, was it like thirty five percent of your funding? Like he came in like a responsible parent, I guess. Like not, I'm not going to give you all your money. I'm going to give you like an enough to give you a a, a foot up. Yeah, basically that's right. I mean, we we had to sort of work to get money from them in the in the early days. Um, and we, we started working as, as we talked about on Cambodia, and then we uh, 
worked on the Blood Diamond campaign and brought that issue to the world mm-hmm. and then looking at the corruption in the oil sector. And we were doing all of that before we ever talked to to George Soros. Um, and yeah, he, he said he'd give us 35% of our funding. In fact, only ever gave us around 20%, but, mm-hmm. um, but it was the right thing to do. Um, and yeah, he is a scapegoat. And it's interesting because in many of our exposés, people will say, ah, oh, they're a George Soros funded plot, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great plot. And people will say, we've learned that they get funding from George Soros. And you think, well, you could look at our website and it says it there. Um, it's, it's our, as with all of our funders, it's hiding in plain sight, eh? <laughs> <laughs> hiding in plain sight on our funding page on our website. Yeah. Um, and I always think that with, you know, with people like George Soros, you know, you, you can judge them in part by the enemies they have. Um, and, you know, the people who don't like George Soros, um, I, not because of George Soros, I wouldn't particularly like either, like Quaidon yeah. or Donald, Donald Trump or um, <laughs> the, a, a countless legions of them, yeah. But I think that the fact is that, you know, he, he, like anyone, is not perfect, but he's given away, I think, something like $36 billion um, and the global human rights and anti-corruption organizations right across the planet, you know, probably wouldn't exist in the same way without his support. Wow. Yeah, that is amazing. That is, um, I mean, he can get away with some stuff if 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 he does that. Um, I just want to pivot back to the Blood Diamond stuff because you mentioned that and, and reading about that in the book was eye-opening because it was within a couple of years, an Angolan... Or I've or I've messed up my countries there. There's quite a few countries to to get my head around, but it was like 3.9 billion over the span of a couple of years, enough to fund one of Africa's like largest wars came from blood diamonds. And I guess the the concept of of blood diamonds was known before you got involved, or or not so. No, it wasn't. Um... The, the issue of blood diamonds was, um, as one author described it, sort of hidden away and, until a small and relatively unknown organization ripped away this curtain and exposed it in all its bloody horror, I think, something like his word. <laughs> no, so the, the, the diamond industry knew, um, but publicly it wasn't known. No organization was working on it when we began. Um, the reason we did was, uh, again, our former boss, Alan Thornton, came to us and basically told us about the subject, which we hadn't thought about doing. We were still, you know, three people working on Cambodia. Mm. And he talked about this war in Angola. Um, and the war had been going on since um, independence from uh, Portuguese colonialism. Um, and by then the war was between the, the right-wing rebel group, UNITA, and the Marxist government, the MPLA. Um, and that they'd both been Cold War proxies. And when the Cold War came to an end, they needed to find money from somewhere else. And, and mm. the government turned to oil and the Unita turned to diamonds. Um, and so, yeah, the figure you gave, about $3.9 billion over a particular few years, came from diamonds. Um, and there were two other wars in Africa at that time, Liberia and Sierra Leone, two other civil wars, also largely funded by diamonds. But we picked on one because we... This was a kind of campaigning lesson, if you like. If you have picked on all of them, it would have been too big a story. It would have been too confusing. We need to focus yeah. on one place and do it well. Um, and we thought what we learned quite quickly is we couldn't investigate diamonds in the kind of very amateurish way we'd begun investigating the timber trade in Cambodia because the diamond industry is closed. 
everybody knows each other. It's, you can you can smuggle, you know, millions of dollars of diamonds in your pocket. You know, you can't yeah. smuggle timber in the same way. So it's it's a very hard thing to track in that way. So what we actually did, um, and I guess it's a little bit of creativity, really, is is we looked at eighty percent of the world's rough diamonds at that time were bought by one company, which was a cartel called De Beers, which is still you know the the company that created the slogan "A diamond is forever." Eighty mm. percent um, of the world's rough diamonds bought by one company, and they controlled that trade because they wanted to manipulate the price. Um, I they had the diamonds, so they could sell what quality they wanted, when they wanted, to just a few people and basically create a kind of, you know, a false price level. Yeah. Um, and they said, uh, you know, when we sort of talked to them, well, you can't tell where diamonds come from. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, once you've got a diamond in your hand, you know, where's, where's it come from? And we, we talked to various geologists who said, well, actually, you can, with rough diamonds, not cut diamonds, with rough diamonds, you can, if you've got a few of them, tell almost to the mine where they come wow. from. Um I suppose there was a bit of disparity there. Um, and also, we just looked at De Beers' annual reports. Um, and, you know, in those years of the um, of the 1990s, in their reports, they'd say you know, things like, oh, the fact we can still buy so many Angolan rough diamonds is a, a testament to the skill of our negotiating and buying teams. But that was a tacit admission because virtually all of the diamonds, which are alluvial diamonds, i.e. find them lying around in riverbeds or whatever, in Angola, were in UNITA territory. So the de facto saying they were buying from UNITA. Um, And we just pointed it out. We would look through their annual reports for a few years, what they said for a few years. Um, We backed it up with a few, you know, meetings we'd had with various diamond dealers and stuff. And we came out with a report. It was something off the top of my head, like 12 pages long called a rough trade in in late 1998 and it came out by coincidence uh, sad coincidence on the day that civil war rebroke out after peace negotiations in angola and it just got it went ballistic so we as an unknown organization suddenly became a little better known um, and the uh, and basically global press were covering the issue of blood diamonds and, and that name was born with that campaign um and that led eventually to the creation of um, a process called the Kimberley process to take to make sure diamonds weren't sourced from conflict zones, which you know it wasn't perfect, but it was it was a beginning. Um, and then, of course, Ted Swick made a film about it in two thousand six yeah. with Leonardo DiCaprio, and it became much much better known. Yeah, for sure. And and how about nowadays? I don't know. Is it still something that you're looking into? Is it still something you monitor? How how is the diamond trade behaving? The we, we we don't really look into it now. We sort of broadened out to look at gemstones more widely. Um, fortunately, um, the three big wars I mentioned, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Angola, came to an end, um, not least because the, the diamond funding was cut. We also worked on the timber trade in Liberia, mm. uh, which was also funding the war. Um, and those wars ended. So the big diamond wars ended. Um but we have monitored it since um, the Central African Republic have had conflict diamond issues. Zimbabwe's had conflict diamond issues. Um, but we broadened out. And so the most recent work we've done that's similar to that really would be looking at the jade industry in Myanmar, formerly Burma. Um, mm. We did an investigation on that a few years ago, which was like really quite a sophisticated investigation and looking at how 
a series of secretly owned companies for manipulating this trade. And what we actually exposed was that the jade industry, and your jade's a semi-precious stone yeah. uh, that is very, very popular in China, was controlled by, I can't remember the numbers offhand, but around about 15 people. Um, and it was worth around $30 billion, $30 billion a year in Myanmar. And those people were like, you know, kind of some of the former and now current, again, uh, military dictators, um, drug lords, and a few other unsavory characters. Like virtually half the country's GDP was a criminally controlled enterprise. Um, wow. And so that was that was a massive piece of work. Jeez, it's, I don't, like, it is surprising that there are such terrible people out there, but then when... You, like rationalizing like, oh, one in a hundred people is probably a psychopath. And I guess that kind of makes for a lot of bad people in the world. But the, the, the media seems to focus on working class criminals and like paints them in the, in the worst light possible. But what it seems that it's these, these are sophisticated, high class, like super, super rich criminals who are fucking the world basically and that that seems to be the real root cause of the problem is that is that a fair assumption succinctly put um yeah yeah i i think it is you know and i I make this point in the book that the 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 headlines are made by like the hatton garden diamond robbery or something which netted a few Mm. mil a few a few few sad old guys out in their last foray um or the great train robbery or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and these are peanuts compared to the crimes we're talking about. So we, we ended up focusing, you know, we started off looking at timber from Cambodia, not, not as tree huggers, although personally we are, but actually because it was a natural resource, it really didn't matter what resource it was. So we've looked at, you know, diamonds, oil, timber, jade, many other things. Um, and what we discovered and, and again, we're pioneers of sort of uncovering this thing known as the resource curse, whereby some of the richest countries in the world, um, like Democratic Republic of Congo or Afghanistan or Myanmar, the richest countries in the world in terms of natural resources are amongst the most screwed. Um, yeah. Very often, if not usually with authoritarian regimes, stroke dictatorships, uh, poverty rife amongst the general population with a, a little cream at the top yeah. of these super rich um, and and very often prone to conflict. Um, so whereas those populations should actually be enjoying probably a pretty good GDP income, um, they've got nothing. Um, the countries are robbed blind. Um, the oil industry is, is you know, a prime example of this in many parts of the world. It rarely brings wealth in, in somewhere like Norway it might, but most of the world it does not bring much to the ordinary person. Um, and yeah, in, in one example that I cover in the book is this mining deal in the West African country of Guinea, whereby a, a, yeah. a mining company connected to a guy called Benny Steinmetz, and it's called Benny Steinmetz Group Resources, obtained um, back in sort of around 2010-ish um, the world's richest untapped deposit of iron ore. Um, and they got it for nothing. And, uh, and within about, you know, the space of a year or so sold 51% of what they bought for $2.5 billion, which is twice the national economy of that country. 
that's that's a big big crime <laughs> 2.5 billion dollars and of course it, it was described at the time as the deal of the century and, and and a lot of us thought well actually if anything's that good then it's corrupt yeah. um and so we we've carried out you know uh, a very you know a years long investigation um into uncovering how that deal was done and the corruption that was involved in it and of course that brings you know something you may want to talk about in, in this podcast is the other side of the equation it's easy to think of corruption being something that happens over there you bribe some dictator or some politician and um and you you get your hands on the natural resources but a question we asked ourselves then was well every corrupt deal needs a bank where are all the banks you know <laughs> well they're in london we they're in new york they're <laughs> in they're in europe um Every every corrupt deal needs a secretly owned company, and and how, who could who who enables all that to happen? And and what I call the pinstripe army in the book these mm-hmm. the accountancy firms, the legal firms, um, the company registration agents, the banks that make all of this possible. They're in our backyard. They could be living up the road from you. These people, yeah, um, probably are. You know, well, um, clap them usually, so they definitely well, will, they will be. then. <laughs> They'll <laughs> be next door to some of them. <laughs> They, they definitely will be, um, and the book focuses on that because that's how these you know, these big crimes happen. And of course, in the news right now, you know, the oligarchs are getting sanctioned. We were talking about, and we and others have got monopoly on it. We're talking about the corrupt money they were bringing in and the need. In fact, we we got laws, you know, in, virtually introduced by David Cameron back in 2016 to tackle the public ownership of. Uh, rather the foreign ownership of UK property to keep laundered money out of the UK. But of course, he resigned, nothing ever happened. And now we've got the same law again. The Economic Crime Bill came in a couple of weeks ago. But yeah. it took the biggest war since World War II to get it. You know, the government yeah. could have acted before, but they don't. They're all enabling. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Because I, I, I think you're right. It's very easy to distance ourselves in in the west from this and be like oh god those those other continents they're so naughty and it's like well we are the enablers here or not not individually but there there are individuals here who are enabling that um was it was jp morgan held hundreds of millions and and for was it was it obiang in equatorial guinea no the 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 jp morgan one was this uh corruption case that we looked at whereby the oil company Shell and the Italian yes. oil company Eni, E-N-I, which is the biggest company in Italy, paid um, around $2 billion, sorry, no, $1.1 billion uh, to get hold of Niger- one of Nigeria's richest offshore oil blocks. Um, and that money was held for a while in an escrow account in J.P. Morgan in London and then channeled to the various people who were profiting from the deal. So, yeah, absolutely. It was kind of... Um, you know, the, the straw man really between the, the people paying the, the dodgy money, $1.1 billion, and the people who received it. Um, and JP Morgan played a role in that, um, as did many others. Yeah, it, it makes it, it, it almost makes you feel a little bit awkward now walking around and, and seeing like a Shell garage and thinking, oh my goodness, I've put money into Shell. I know my money's not made that much of a difference, but. I suppose it probably should be obvious that these like large oil corporations, any diamonds, timber, like it, it's probably pretty obviously corrupt nowadays after all, all that you've uncovered, 
these companies must be shitting themselves in some sense. And, and these investment banks, they must feel like they've got a target on their back. Yeah, I, I think they do. But of course, they. I think one can't underestimate the cynicism of these companies and how well resourced they are. Um, and you know, the oil, the oil industry, oil and mining industry together has been described by the OECD, um, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, as one of the most corrupt on the planet. Um, and, and my colleague Simon sort of has it that you know, if there's an oil deal somewhere. Um, the question really is not whether or not it's corrupt, it's how they did it, because um, that that changes. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's the real challenge. Um, and, and this is something else about, you know, anyone like whether, you know, an investigative organization like ours or investigative journalists are investigating these issues. One of the problems is, again, coming back to these enablers is that if we want to publish a report about a corrupt deal, and we'll follow best journalistic practice, we'll write to the subject of our report and say, okay, you know, we'll basically give them a chance to answer before we publish. Like, okay, yeah. we that, you know, you signed, you, you paid this bribe or you signed this dodgy contract or whatever. And they can come back and say, yes, we did, no, we didn't. But what often happens is we'll get a letter from their lawyers. Um, and these are, top London law firms, because uh, Britain is the, the worst place to be sued for libel or defamation on the planet. It's the most expensive. It's the hardest place to defend oneself. Wow. And, you know, if, if you're getting, you know, a law firm being funded by a company or a corrupt individual worth billions, you know, and, and we do not have billions, um, you've got to know what you're talking about. You know, you've yeah. got to, we do spend a lot on lawyers, but you have to make sure you're right. Otherwise you'll be, but even if, you're right. You can be crushed. Um, you know, there are two recent high profile cases in London, uh, where an author called Tom, Tom Burgess and a journalist, Catherine Belton, were, well, she was sued by Abramovich. I mean, you know, um, you don't get much more oh. <laughs> of an unequal struggle than that, you know, and it's just, it, it's just really kind of an, more than a front. It, it's, it's absolutely a, a repression of free speech, you know? Yeah. So those of us who try and tell the truth live under that kind of threat, um, the, the whole time. Yeah. It's, um, it's scary really. Like it's, it's hats off for you for keeping going and, and keeping pushing. I do really think you've done an amazing job doing that. And, and one, not many people would be brave enough to do because I guess it is your livelihood on, on the line every time. And, let's face it with these corrupt individuals maybe even your life have have you ever felt seriously threatened i mean we 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 have um we we have been threatened from from time to time um but those threats were more when when on the kind of looking at forests or or as we we, we document the killings of land and environmental defenders as well, following indeed the assassination of one of our former colleagues back in 2012, a Cambodian forest activist called Chuk Vuti. Um, and so that if you're in the middle of nowhere in a very remote place, um, investigating very bad people, um, then yeah, you, you need to be very, very careful. Um, and, and we take that seriously. We, we we undergo the same kind of training that you know war correspondents do, um, which both 
hopefully tells you how to avoid a problem and if the problem does happen, how to get out of it. Um, but you know, that's not always in one's gift. Um, so yeah, we, we have faced those, those things, but the biggest threat we face is actually legal. Um, you know, the, the people that, you know, our colleagues in some of the countries we work in face far more danger than we do all of the time and they can't go home. They are, well, they are home. They can't leave like we do. So that they, they're far more at risk than we, so yes, we face risks, but not nearly as much as those we work with on the ground. Um, but we face the legal ones. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the tricky one for us. And there are some, there are some very few, but some issues we haven't taken on, you know, we were offered a, a really good leak of documents some years ago into the Russian mafia and we thought suicide, <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you can see anyone messing with Russia gets Novichokd or or something else um, from, yes, from exactly. the history. They're, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. Um, we were speaking about London and, and how dangerous it is to do stuff in London. And we touched on the, the oligarchs getting sanctioned. But the London property industry is seemingly a good place to hide money if if you're super rich, which doesn't make us as people who live in England probably feel that good because we would like to distance ourselves from it. But what is the scale of of that kind of corruption in the London property market or surrounding counties as well with mansions and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the figures vary, but the, the problem, just to, to answer your question the, the correct, correct way round, really, is the problem is that people are able until about two weeks ago to buy property through an anonymously owned company um, in the UK, which means you don't actually know who owns it. And unless you're very, very thorough an investigator, you can't find out who owns it. So you could walk down, you know, a street in Hampstead and who knows who owns the places in there. You just know it's not on the land registry. It's just a company name. So the companies, a, a, a journalist in the Financial Times some years ago, Put it down to I think 122 billion pounds worth of property in the UK was owned by anonymously owned companies. Um, Transparency International, the last figure I saw, um, I think was saying that there, of that, there are about somewhere six and a half billion pounds worth of properties that are very likely connected to dodgy money, and 1.5 billion of that connected to dodgy Russian money. Um, so yeah, it's a, a really good place to launder your money because, um, obviously the best place to launder your money is into the world banking system. You can put more of it in there, but then fixed assets like property. And so one of the chapters in the book, I focus on the, the former secret police chief of Kazakhstan, um, and his family. So his, his wife was a daughter or is the daughter of, uh, was the daughter of the current, the president, the, the, yeah. the daughter of the president at the time. Um, and we basically followed up a lead we had and found out that people connected to that family owned 150 million pounds worth of property, largely on London's Baker Street, uh, including what would have been the Sherlock Holmes's apartments at 221B, um, mm-hmm. had he, had he existed. Um, and we, you know, it's, it's one of the sort of the confusing chapters of the book. I freely admit it because it was, it was worse writing it than reading it. I can assure you that. This network of companies that, you know, layer upon layer, like a Russian doll, you know, you peel off one layer of companies, you got another and another and another. 
um so in in the end we couldn't work out exactly who owned it other than the fact we could say it was connected to that family um and i sort of touched on this earlier on um we released that information we we, we sort of used the sherlock holmes angle because the media love that kind of thing and we produced a report called mystery on baker street um and talked about it and david cameron was doing a, a a sort of a, a business touting tour at the time and at a speech in Singapore announced that he would bring in a law um, to make the ownership of a foreign ownership of, of UK property, public information. Um, so, you know, we in Transparency International UK particularly worked on that. Um, and that was like a real victory, except Brexit happened. Cameron resigned. The yeah. political champion of that had gone. Um, and, we we've tried ever since to get successive governments to do it and they haven't until until now um yeah. when suddenly everyone's got very keen on sanctioning oligarchs they should have been doing this a long time ago it should not have taken a war yeah i think it's it's clear to see that we're now tails between our legs trying to make make these laws happen but this this sanctions on the oligarchs they now mean that any foreign entity business buying land it will go to a public domain where, where that's accessible is that yes basically i don't know exactly how it'll look but, but yeah you'll be able to find out who owns if, it, if they write the law in the right way um who owns any property in the, in the uk that that's what we need to have um mm. we've already worked in the past on secret ownership of companies because so many corrupt deals were done under the guise of a company that you didn't you know registered in the Virgin Islands, or indeed in, in the UK, and you couldn't find out who was behind that either. Um, we, we've done more investigations onto that. Uh, but yeah, so that's hopefully what we'll get from that law. That's what we need. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, I don't want to spoil too many stories in, in the book for people. It's not stories, it's real life. Too much of the real life information that's in the book for people listening. And there are a lot of other interesting stories in there. But the, I recently watched There Will Be Blood. I don't know if you've watched that film. Um, yeah. Which made me realise, obviously, people in the oil industry are pretty pretty not cool. Um, and I kind of liken Facebook, Amazon, all of these new big tech companies as like the new oil companies. And I saw on your website that you've recently done a report on Facebook um, for their like inciting violence and the Muslim minorities in Myanmar through hate speech and advertising are these kind of issues popping up more and more for you with big tech companies seemingly being not not best behaved totally and i think your comparison between oil companies and big tech is very appropriate because when the oil companies were growing back in the you know early to mid 20th century they had they were the richest companies on the planet the unimaginable wealth mm. um and therefore power and it was abused if i could do anything they wanted and i think that's what we're seeing with tech now i mean again a, an exponential level up of this unimaginable power and of course what we've seen is that um you know hate transfer you know, hate moves faster um through social media than anything else does um you know hence the you know QNOT, like six times faster or something isn't it fake news six times yes six times faster and of course that's all about advertising revenue you know so the, the more you have traveling through the more revenue 
these companies get. Um, and they're not investing. A, they're not very often um, living up to the the legal requirements they have in terms of stopping uh, hate speech, etc. Um, but it's you, you can't help but wonder at their uselessness at it. So in the case of you know uh, Facebook inciting violence in Myanmar, um, I can't remember the figures exactly, but they had something like you know four or five Burmese speakers um, moderating something like seven million Facebook users in Myanmar. It's like Jeez. nonsense, complete nonsense. Um, while a genocide was going on. Um, and, you know, it, it's just extraordinary, the irresponsibility of that. It's completely inexcusable. Yeah, because it's not like they're short of cash to employ more people. Exactly. Um, and I, I think it, you know, obviously the, the, the people who run these companies, the Zuckerbergs of this world, you know, it doesn't, you know, the odd hundred million doesn't mean anything to them. They're that rich. So I'm not quite sure what's holding them back. And I, I do fear that it's power. You know, I think yeah. they love the power um, that, that, that the money and then that the reach they have brings. Could yeah. be power for good, but um, <laughs> it's very often misused. Yeah, for sure. Well, they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, like I've listened to a couple of podcasts that Mark Zuckerberg's on and I mean, he just, he sounds a little bit like a normal person, which is a shame because I'd like, I'd, I'd like to demonize him. But I guess when you own a company like that, there's, there's so much beyond what you understand that I guess you need to, he needs to probably just work a bit harder. I don't know what the solution would be. Um, do, I think you, that. Or? I think the solution. Well, there, there is an example before, which, going back to the comparison with oil, would be to break up the company into smaller bits. Mm. Um, that's what happened with Standard Oil, um, which was kind of the, the Rockefeller oil company. It had become too powerful, too abusive, um, and it had got to such a level. I think in the 1930s. I'm not an expert on this, but around about mm. then that actually they were forced to break up into smaller outfits. And so a lot of the big oil companies now, um, the, the famous ones like Exxon, et cetera, were kind of the product of that breakup. Um, so and they're not small companies themselves. Um, so uh, that's what needs to happen with companies like Facebook. It's too big for one person to control. Yeah, for sure. And And they're not doing anything in that direction either. They're just acquiring more and more companies and getting them under that meta kind of title to i guess accrue more power and that's why there's there's violence being incited under under their supervision i guess or lack of um is there is there anything else that that you're looking into that you can speak about that you'd want people to think about i guess yeah well i think it it comes back to oil you know at global witness we've worked for you know almost 30 years on you know, what I described, the, the, the resource curse, and not just that, but corruption and the role of corruption in society. And obviously, from 1998, 99, oil has been a big part of that, the immense corruption in the oil industry. And what you have now, I'm not, obviously, we're facing climate change, that, you know, and arguably until the war in Ukraine, the biggest threat to, to the planet. Um, and so we've basically been shifting our strategy to try and tackle 
the climate crisis, but using the skills and experience we have from, from the world of corruption, because, you know, a lot of the climate crisis comes back down to corruption and the role of oil, um, and how, you know, on the most benign level, you know, the oil and gas and coal industries have subverted, um, I say benign, I mean, the most benign relatively in their terms, the democracies of most of our countries, you know, the, the amount of oil lobbyists, the amount of political donations, um, you know, our pos- politicians are largely all bought um, by the fossil fuel industry, which is why, you know, globally, um, the issue is still going on. It's like, it, logically, we would be going, oh, shit, we're all going to die. Let's do something about it. And we're not. Um, the ultimate expression of corruption, I think, the ultimate manifestation of corruption is dictatorship. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing now with Russia and the Ukraine and and the threats more widely come right back down to corruption and right back down to oil. Um, and the solution lies within oil. And this is where we've done a radical, we already had done a radical shift and then with the invasion, another one, which is that Russia earns 56% of his export earnings are from hydrocarbons, oil, gas, coal. Um, something like 40% of the national revenues are from oil, gas, coal. Mm. If we really want to hurt Putin and Putin's Russia, that's what we need to stop buying. And Europe gets, the EU gets something like 40% of its gas, for example, from Russia. Um, the UK is a smaller percentage. It's something like, I think, 8% of its gas and 4% of its oil or the other way around, from Russia. So we're, we're effectively, collectively, bankrolling Putin's war. Now, that's pretty mad. Um, so I understand that you can't necessarily switch off all the taps immediately, but we need to do it extremely fast, extremely yeah. fast. Otherwise, that war will continue. Without it, you know, Russia is in a really, really tricky position, and Putin personally, and he's a very bad person, is in a very tricky position. You know, will his political elite stick by him? Will the KGB stick by him if if Russia is really going belly up economically? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, and then you've got China on the other side of that. I read Tim Marshall's Prisoners of Geography, which opened my eye up to like the whole geopolitical spectrum of of who's doing what and where and that. Is it safe to say that that's a dictatorship in China? Like it's it's pretty much a communist state, which pretty much means it's led by, led by one person. Um, it, I I think there's there's subtle communist about China anymore, apart from the name, yeah. um, uh, the name of the, the ruling party. Yes, I, I think it is effectively a dictatorship yeah. um, of the worst sort. You know the 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 genocide of, of the Uyghur population. Um, the repression of, uh, you know, human rights activists, freedom of speech activists. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I think it's, it's a lot of problems in that country. And of course it, we, we in the West have, have given away our largely given away our manufacturing industries and, and buy from China and China gets the resources to do that from the countries that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. Um, so it's kind of, a, it's all connected. Wow. And I guess the, the, what is the what is the most powerful thing for the individual to do? What do you say? I think to understand the problem that sounds, um, you know, a 
a bit of a trite thing to say, but I think to understand the problem is really helpful because that then can open people's eyes to what else they could do. And yeah. one of the things that we discovered is that, you know, we were three people without any money who managed to, you know, have some kind of impact and create a, an organization now, which is about a hundred people strong, which is having a lot of good impact. And uh, because of all of the brilliant people who are within it, we're still tiny compared to the problems we're facing, but we still make waves as do other organizations. So people, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend everyone do this, but you, there's nothing to stop anyone achieving something if they want to go do it, basically. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on, on this, this latest thing, write, write to your MP and say, stop buying Russian oil um, w- would be a, a really good start because it's, I think, even if people are skeptical, which they shouldn't be, about climate change, you cannot be skeptical about the evil of this war, which is now threatening, you know, global peace um and there's one kind of relatively easy solution I mean, it may not be the complete solution but you know stop buying russian oil yeah oh, amazing well it seems that history is going to keep giving you no well, recent history is going to keep giving you very bad people so there's probably a strong chance for a second book at some point <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe I, I i wish there wouldn't be that chance but you're probably yeah. right yeah, and and what what's the best way that people could support Global Witness um, beyond buying the book and stuff like that? I think um, buying the book's a great one. Um, uh, I think you know, check out our website, check out the campaigns we're working on, sign up to to get the newsletter. Obviously, you know, donations always welcome. Um, but yeah, the the the, the moral support for the work that we and and our allies and other organizations do is what we need and and politicians in the end listen to voters um and so don't vote for people who are supporting very bad people like that excellent and what about you do you have put your right are there any other types of writing anywhere else me Mm. Um, just the reports and yeah, I mean, all I've done really is is reports and then this book. Um, I I harbour the notion of a a fiction book, but on the same kind of subject. You know, I, I think I've always been inspired by, um, and I, I hasten to add, I, I do not have the vanity to think I remotely emulate John le Carre. Um, but a lot of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book very bad people is because i felt that so much of what the carry writes about is stuff that we were encountering mm. uh, and and he you know he borrowed from some of our stuff occasionally quite and very welcome he was to it um and i wanted to sort of capture the fact that what you read in you know this master of spy stories and suspense actually is real life yeah. um and having done that what i'd like to do and you know i only scratched the surface of stuff we've worked on and we've done many more things than i write about I would like perhaps to have a stab at fiction um, yeah. in, the, in the vein of, you know, again, showing that some of the stuff people think is fiction is in fact real. Um, yeah. So to, yeah, so to pick on some real issues and dramatize them a bit. Well, I look forward to it. I think you've got, you've had enough of a uh, real world inspiration to come up with something pretty wild. So I'll, I'll be excited <laughs> to read that. And um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been enlightening to read your book and enlightening to chat to you well thanks very much for inviting me it's a it's a pleasure really 
Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode. I had such a good time chatting to Patrick. I really am honoured to chat to someone who's done so much in the pursuit of reducing human suffering across the planet. I think it's admirable, very honourable line of work. And look, he's exposing some things that most of us seem to live in blissful ignorance of. Uh, But now, unfortunately, you can't unhear that. You now know about it. So what do you do? Well, head to Global Witness. You can keep up to date with them. You can read the book, Very Bad People. And of course, I don't know, you can can maybe boycott some of these brands that you've heard of. Maybe you don't bank with JP Morgan. Maybe don't get your petrol from Shell. Who knows? The options do become limited when you start to learn about corruption. But I guess the trade-off of funding corruption to just having a little bit of an inconvenience as to where you shop. I mean, I guess it's not that bad. But it's up to you what you do. Maybe there's a cruel optimism uh, undertone in what I was just saying there. It is, of course, all up to you. If you want to keep up to date with everything that happens on Need to Read, in the link is a link to sign up to my mailing. I'm getting better at writing, so the emails are getting better quality. And hopefully... People are learning stuff as well. That's certainly the feedback I'm getting. So you'll only ever know if you try, right? And I guess the link is there should you want it. But that is it from me. Thank you so much for listening. You're all absolute legends. Love you, bye. Actually, not going. Please uh, give me a review on Spotify or or Apple or wherever you're listening. uh, Or tell a friend, you know, share it. Share the love. You legends. Love you again. Bye again.